Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element, with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, when it comes to loss, it can always damage the way that we act amongst the family, especially if that family member was an integral part in that connection. We all heal from loss, but how do we stay resilient as a family? That's a quick look into our discussion today, and now we are joined by clinical psychologist, family therapist, as well as author, Dr. Froma Walsh. Thank you so much for joining me today, Froma. Pleasure to be here with you. Now, I've had the pleasure of reading one of your books, The Complex and Traumatic Loss. Now, it talks about so many different circumstances, including the different types of traumas surrounding the loss, the roles and family dynamics that change, as well as the different pathways to healing. Now, as your work as a clinical psychologist and a family therapist, what is your role in assisting families with traumatic losses? It's very important, and sometimes uh, we don't attend to the family concerns. Uh, I think most in the United States, in much of Europe, and I think in Australia and Asia as well, um, the focus in mental health services is very much about the individual. A family might send in a child or a spouse uh, who is suffering too much, or maybe a child who is misbehaving. And that individual is seen in individual assessment, and then the symptoms are assessed because our diagnostic ways in the mental health field uh, are looking for what's wrong and how how are things not working for you. You're not able to function. You can't eat or you can't sleep. Or maybe you're causing trouble with other people or you're drinking too much. And while that person is truly suffering, we're losing sight of what else is going on in the family. Because when a family member dies, it might be a parent, but it means all the siblings are having reactions. A spouse is losing their partner. Uh, Aging parents and family members are losing their child. So there are going to be many reactions in the family, and the intensity of the loss is going to affect family functioning. So it could be that there's a breakdown and a lack of support, and each individual has to go off on their own to try to find their way of healing. And maybe one comes to us, a child, or maybe more often, it's a female family member. Um, And it might be that the breadwinner has to go to work every day and doesn't really have time or space to grieve. So it's very important to, to ask about no matter who is coming for help, or within the family to think about, yeah, that child seems to be doing just fine, but he's also experienced a loss, and maybe he's trying to be helpful to help out because he can see that others are really in distress. Mm -hmm. 
Now, when it comes to that, what is the most common concern that families usually share when it comes to wanting to heal after that loss? Well, first of all, there's the devastation uh, of we can't fix this. You know, we can't. This is not a problem we can solve. And I know in many societies, many cultures, especially Western cultures, we're very much focused on what can we do? Um, how can we fix this, solve this problem? And so it's very hard to know what to do when a loved one is grieving, often in a couple. Maybe one partner is grieving intensely and the other one wants to be helpful but doesn't know what to do and backs off. Uh, or one is trying to be, uh, one partner is, is trying not to show emotion so that they can be strong for the family. When what we need to do is help both of them to come together in mutual support. The one thing that we've found in research over decades now, I've been I've been doing this work for a long time, is that uh, a a tragic death in the family can break families apart. If couples can't support each other, they may just distance and go separate ways, or they may fight over blaming each other or feeling the other one isn't caring enough. And it can really corrode their relationship. Mm -hmm. Now, that's such a great introduction into our topic today. Before we discuss it even further, I'd love to get to know some of your recommendations as well as some of your interests by playing our channel's favorite little icebreaker. Now, to start off with, what is the most recent book that you've read? Uh, that I've read? <laughs> well, I must say that I'm still very active in my own work, and it's mostly I'm reading about things that are happening in the world. And so I, I don't have a happy story to tell you that I'm reading. I'm mostly reading news around the world and um, trying to understand and to see how in the midst of war, in the midst of these climate crises, how we can do something to make a difference that's going to be positive. So I'm mostly reading, um, I listen to podcasts. I'm reading the world news just to understand more deeply. Like people are suffering in many places around the world right now. Uh, natural disasters because of climate change. Families who are losing members uh, through migration and through refugee and displacement. Uh, and so uh, I um, am still very active in my practice and I want to be of help and of service where I can be. Mm -hmm. So that's, sorry, it wasn't very cheerful, but I guess what I'm always looking for is not, a, I don't mean a silver lining exactly, but how in the midst of things that are going so badly, uh, and we've just come through this pandemic as well, how can we rally? Because human resilience is about coming together and being connected and finding others who can support us and how we can support one another. And how can mm -hmm. I be part of that? 
Mm-hmm. No, that's that's great, especially in this day and age. It's great to have people who are really wanting to find different ways. And especially in your line of work, it must be really hard to sort of see everything that's going on as well. Now, to go on, what is a movie that you would recommend to our viewers? Oh, my. <laughs> I just... Uh... I have not seen movies in a long time because of the pandemic. Um, and so we end up watching things on Netflix or other things like that. Um, again, I guess I'm what I'm thinking I need at this time is uh, some ways to find nourishment. And so I'm looking for something that's positive, maybe something that's a little bit of lightness, of humor, of laughing together uh, with family members or friends. What we need, a little bit of lightness in the midst of this darkness. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. I think humor, comedy and humor is probably one of the best ways of healing any kind of situation. So it's it, it's strange how effective comedy actually is. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we all need uh, to uh, not to be mired in troubles of the world and then to turn on, I don't want to watch horror movies or uh, futuristic movies where we're fighting for our survival. Uh, things are bad enough, and <laughs> I want to be able to to find a way to uh, to nourish my spirits. No, that's very true. Now... To go on further, you said that you listen to podcasts. Could you name an example of a podcast that stands out to you? Oh, <laughs> um, well, I listen a lot to Ezra Klein, who is a journalist in the United States, because he looks at wide-ranging issues that we're living through right now, and he brings on writers. He brings on um, not not just political people, but authors, people who can bring us many points of view. Um, I think uh, my approach in working with people and, and trying and living is how do we get out of black and white thinking about things that we're on one side or we're on another because we're in a place, I think, in our world, and you know, in my society, where there's a polarization, you know, and it's us against the others and misinformation and you can't trust people. And it's a breakdown of our uh, what we need most is a sense of connectedness. How can we know each other better? So I try to listen to things that are going to give me new perspectives and hear other voices that I might not encounter in my everyday life because we've kind of retreated a little bit into our our tribes, into gated communities where uh, we're not as open. And maybe partly because of the pandemic, there was this fear of who can we trust? Where can we go? Where are we safe? Uh, And so uh, it's important to open up um, to to other voices and to to let in uh, and get to know one another. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. And I think it's such a great 
it's such a great way of being open-minded. And I think being open-minded, especially in the world that we are in today, is very important. I think it's too easy with social media to just listen to, uh, you know, the people who think like us or are angry like us or who are hurt like us. And mm -hmm. uh, we need to expand and, and get out of our little boxes that, that seal us off from the human connection. No, that's very true. Now, during your academic pursuit, what's been one course that has really stuck out to you? Mm. Wow. See, none of these questions did you prepare me for. <laughs> so That's the um, point. <laughs> wow, you gave me a list. Oh, I see. In my academic I think, um, well, I had both academic and psychology. And in, in my undergraduate years, um, I even had a course on um, where we each... I was studying psychology, and it was called physiological, which is now neuroscience. But this is in mm -hmm. the old days. And so I even had a small lab where I had a jar with a sheep brain inside of it. And uh, we would, we would, you know, learn about the different parts of the brain as if we could understand everything about human behavior. Um, you know, by understanding everything that's going on in here. And uh, we have therapies that do that too. If we could just change, you know, some of the ways we think about things, uh, change a little bit of our behavior. But there was another course I took um, that just opened me up because uh, it was about, uh, and this was in the same department, and this was with rats in those days, experiments where rats who are identical in all of their genetics and their brain structure, and they and one group of rats was given an enriched environment. It meant they had wheels to play in, they had interesting things going on. I don't know what rats are interested in, but they seem to be quite engaged in their environment. And the other rats just had a very nothing, really. Mm -hmm. And later on, they studied, you know, after the, the deaths of those rats. And what they found was that the brain was changed by the enriched environment, that our environment matters. So that mm -hmm. uh, individual approaches to practice are can be valuable when we're working with individuals. But for instance, when there's been trauma events and individuals are suffering, there's also, we need also to not only help them to reduce the suffering, but one way of doing that is how can we enrich their environment, the people in their lives who could be more supportive uh, mm -hmm. I think, you know, that was important for me from the beginning in seeing that we don't heal from terrible things that happen alone and by ourselves. There's a, there was a saying in um, South Africa during the time mm -hmm. of the change in, from apartheid. Um, it was sorrow felt alone 
creates a crater in the soul, but sorrow shared brings new life. And I think that's kind of at the basis of everything I do, which is as a therapist, I may be working to help an individual who's suffering, but I want to help them to find those connections in their life. It could be through their faith. It could be through their community. It could be through roommates, through creating family if they feel they can't get positive support from the family they were raised in to help them find and build kinship. So to me, family is not just the family you were raised in, but that we all can create um, loving kinship with others. And so when I'm asking people who is family, you know, Mm -hmm. it could be my partner and I, it could be um, I have a companion animal with an elderly person who lives alone. This is my family. My six cats and I, we're the family. Um, It could be particularly for indigenous people, uh, for people from many cultures in the world, the connection with ancestors, with those who have come before. For others, Mm -hmm. it could be a couple who want to make a new life together uh, and their future commitment together and their family. Mm -hmm. So it could be a safe Yeah, and their whole extended family that's supporting them. So um, it takes me, I guess for me, uh, it it all takes me back to our need for home, for belonging, for connection. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's very true. I think family is such a great um, indicator. And I'm glad that that course really has stuck to you now because it's really sort of helped ground a lot of your thinking in a way and it's really built on what you what you see healing as and what you see I mean especially after reading your books when you're reading um telling me that explanation it definitely has some impact um that def- that course definitely had some impact on you so I know that you have said that a lot of different people's idea of what family is what would your definition of family be um Well, I think there is not one single universal, this is the way to be a family. Um, I started out um, thinking about our our ideas, our notions about the normal family and Mm -hmm. what society or our culture tells us is the right way to be a family. And any other way is it's, dysfunctional and you're going to damage your children. And so several decades ago, I was curious because I was doing research uh, of families and their part um, uh, with uh, families that were hospital, with young adults that were hospitalized with serious mental illness. And I had a control group that I was studying of just families in the community. And I found the families in the community even more interesting because so much of our mental health work is about finding what's wrong in families. And the families in the community, they were all different households and some were divorced or separated or, you know, with partners or 
extended family. I mean, many different ways. Uh, and now we're really appreciating through the research that says, yes, um, families that uh, have uh, uh, two men or two women or mixed or or any gender uh, that isn't considered the normative way that we are, that gender and that sexual identity are fluid and that children can be raised in a variety of kinship arrangements. And there's not one right way that makes children healthy. It's much more the quality of their relationships. Mm -hmm. No, that's very true. And I think especially in the way that we sort of understand what connection is and what family is in today's today's world and today's society, there's so much that um, there's so much that we're sort of seeing a beyond the nuclear family, beyond what the mom, dad, two kids, and what that whole ideological view of a perfect family is. Because yes, we see that as the perfect nuclear family, but it doesn't, it's not always the case. And that doesn't mean just because they're, that's the perfect family doesn't mean they are perfect. So there's a whole lot of conversation with us today. And I'm glad that there is in terms of, it's only a matter about who I think, especially when it comes to adoption, and I've had this episode on adoption previously, that a lot of adoption agencies used to only want a nuclear family household. Used to only there's some companies that only adopted out to a mom, a mother, and a father, not a single mother or a single father or um, any other family dynamics. So I'm glad that there's a now different change in it. Yeah, yeah. And we now have research over three decades that documents uh, that children can grow up healthy. Uh, they can face stigma in the community if there is not acceptance or within a larger family that doesn't accept. But it has more to do with parents who um, are nurturing. They provide support. They protect. Uh, they're trusting. So it really is the qualities... And that's what took me and my work to the whole notion of resilience and family resilience, because it isn't the type of family you're in. And believe me, there is no perfect family. I have never met one <laughs> in my lifetime. Uh, but people worry a lot about it because they feel, well, I don't fit the standard or what my family or my community or the larger society says is the right way to be. And uh, that's why I, I, I have four editions uh, ed of a book that's called Normal Family Processes because it took apart that assumption that there's no model that is the perfect model or the right model. Yes, it's easier to raise children if you've got two parents or you've got an extended family that's active. It could be aunts and uncles or grandparents, others that come in. Um, so certainly you have more resources, but a big part of that is economic because mm -hmm. we can't blame single parents like it's your fault if your child is struggling, if in fact they are struggling economically and they don't have the financial resources just for, for housing stability or for, for food or for 
you know, extra tutoring for their children or whatever is needed, or a single parent has to work outside the home plus be responsible for everything. Uh, we've done a lot of community work through our Chicago Center for Family Health, uh, working with agencies in uh, offering services that strengthen vulnerable families without pathologizing them in any way and understanding that all families face challenges and if they have fewer resources and more stressors in their lives, it's going to be harder. But that doesn't mean there's something wrong with the family or that the family simply isn't resilient. Um, they just may need more supports, more resources, more social structures to support them. Mm -hmm. No, that's very true. Now, we've discussed some of the common challenges when it comes to dealing with traumatic loss as a family. Now, after reading your book, one challenge that I've found and have related to is that adaption to loss does not mean resolution. And that was a very good quote that I found. And especially in my point of view, I've seen a lot of family members who are um, really adapting to a loss and sort of dealing with, okay, that person's not in the world anymore. Go about, let's go about it every day and not really think about it too much. And I wanted to ask you, why is it important for us to grieve a loss? Because healing happens through grieving, not closing it off or putting it behind us. Um, I think Australian society is, is influenced uh, as the U.S. a lot by Western European ideas about you know, uh, no must, no fuss. You should, you should get over it. You should put it behind you. You should move on. Mm. And that um, we don't have a good tolerance, uh, again, because we don't know what to do to fix it, to just understand that grief is going to be a process that ebbs and flows over time. Um, there's some mistaken ideas about grief, one is uh, that there are stages of grief and you kind mm -hmm. of, oh, I'm at this stage and now I'm at the next stage. And then, whoops, how did I happen to come back to this one again? Well, the reason is that the research shows there aren't these clear stages. And then finally, we get to the resolution and we put it all behind us um, because it will get easier to bear over time. But for instance, the death of a child you carry for a lifetime, and it will come up in different ways. Maybe at the anniversary, death of a parent will come up on Mother's Day or Father's Day, or a family holiday where it's just not the same. There's somebody missing. There's a hole in the heart of the family. And so uh, it's more like there is a chapter in the book of life where somebody valued, loved, important, could be a caregiver, mm -hmm. um, is no longer physically with us. But the other thing that the research shows is that we don't detach from that person. We don't detach from our feelings. There's the concept now called uh, continuing bonds. And what that means is that 
healthy grieving is about carrying the love uh, and transforming from the physical presence. You know, my loved one is no longer with us every day. Um, we will lose the hopes and dreams we had for the future together. But I can hold the memories of who they were, what our lives were like, and carry ways to remember that, to celebrate that life, to celebrate that love, carry photos, stories that we share with others. Um, and what I've seen that I think I learned the most in my practice over time from families um, is that they come to a place in their grief where they say, it's not going to be over, but I can bear it better now. I can begin to move forward, not happy all the time, but with a memory of how they would like me to go forward without them, not carrying anger, not carrying, you know, at a, at a car crash or someone who took their life or at a drug that ended their life or that a suicide that ended their life, that there, or it could be a, a larger disaster where it's so unjust, so unfair that mm -hmm. you come to a place where I want to make something good come out of this tragedy. I can't, I mean, it will help me to bear it if I can. And I think what happens, and I know in one of your questions you asked me, it, it's about making meaning out of a tragic loss that helps us to bear it. So it might be that we're never sure exactly how it happened or why, you know, this person took their life when they did, or was it an accident or was it not? Did somebody, you know, that we want to try to put that together, but sometimes we come to a place where we just say, I feel more compassion now for others who have gone through losses like this, and mm -hmm. I want to do something. I want our family to do something that's going to make a difference for others. Can I tell mm -hmm. you just a, I think a lot of the, the people that I've known in my personal life as well as patients or families that I've worked with, one family came to me. Uh, their daughter was hospitalized with bipolar disorder. And that's a serious psychiatric condition. And the father didn't understand Bipolar. He was he was a lawyer, and so he didn't understand mental illness. And he just she always is fighting with me. And I don't know. She's so beautiful. She's so talented. Why can't she get her life together? And the mother was more. Huh. What I think about and I worry about is sometimes she gets very depressed, or she just her feelings are too intense, and she says things like, "I don't know if I can go on." And I worry one day that we're going to lose her. And I worked with that couple for a while and they came to a better place. And then they called and they said, she took her own life. She ended her life. And I had to help them with their grief. It was enormous. It was their only child. And she was a beautiful young woman. 
with with such potential. And um, they came to a place in their grief. They called me back on the one-year anniversary, and they said, it's still hard for us, but we want to do something in her name, in her honor. We're going to set up a small foundation and get some donations to remember the beauty in her life, what a beautiful person she was. And we want to in this, we want to set up this little foundation and our faith community, we asked them, could we put on an event once a year in the community for just everyday people in the community to understand mental illness better, to understand suicide, because we didn't. And I, I don't know if I could have made a difference, but we want to make a difference for others. I there's another family where they lost their son to gun violence. And uh, the mother said, I have to find a way to forgive because I can't heal until I'm able to forgive this youth that pulled the trigger. There were gangs in the community and it was a, it was a stupid thing between them. The husband said, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm too angry. But he found a different pathway where he started working with other members of the community to reduce gun violence in their community. And mm -hmm. so that was his pathway in grieving. And hers, you know, through writing a letter, working with a priest who was tending to the young man in prison, so that he could turn his life around, which mm -hmm. he did. Um, wow. So people are going to find different pathways out of their pain and suffering and their struggle. And yet it's important too in a family, like in a couple, that he can, the husband can say, I can't choose her path, but I respect it. I know that's mm -hmm. important. And she said, I understand his anger but I won't be torn apart in anger. And so I will join him in this community effort and we're going to, and they did. And uh, they did that in Chicago. They banded with people, brown, you know, um, people who are brown and black skin in different neighborhoods, rich and poor, who all suffered gun violence to make a difference in their community. So I've seen what can happen over time when people channel some of that anger, some of that hurt, some of that pain into making some, and they say, I want to make something good come out of this tragedy. And it helps them in their healing too. I'm sorry, that was a very long way, but I sometimes when I share stories, it, it's, it's more meaningful than just giving yeah. you principles. Oh, I agree. I think stories and especially in your line of work where you've seen it firsthand, you've dealt with it directly. There's that huge connection that not a lot of people can have. Not a lot of people have the privilege of seeing directly. So to get your point of view is, and to hear these stories from your line of work is is incredible. So it's more than, more than happy for you to share any story that you have. There's, I do want to ask a follow-up when it comes to, like you said, the two ways that they were dealing in grief. 
how do you how do they not have any animosity between each other in okay saying this is how you want to deal with your grief but this is how I want to deal with my grief how is there no and how do you deal with the conflict that can happen if there is that change in dynamic on healing sure well I'll tell you another story and (laughs) there was a couple that this was a pandemic story that's it's very they had uh three small children five and three, and then a newborn. And Mm -hmm. they wanted to uh, just get out of their uh, confinement in their house for their children themselves. So we have, uh, uh, you have Airbnb all over the world. So they decided they were going to rent a cottage in the countryside. They lived in in the city, in the countryside, and it had a, a, a small pool in the back. And uh, they said, this will be perfect. We'll escape from, you know, what we're going through. And uh, after they had a wonderful uh, week together, and at the end they were, the parents were packing up. And the three-year-old little boy, toddler, uh, went out through the back kitchen door into the backyard and went over to the edge of the pool and fell in and fell to the bottom. And the parents found his lifeless body and could not revive him. The medics couldn't revive him. Well, they didn't come. They came for help really more than a year later because what happened over time was they began to blame each other. At first, they were angry at the company that rented them the house. There should have been a latch on the door because people in looking to understand a tragedy, you know, who caused it? Were we at fault? Was somebody else? And then they each started feeling the other was to blame. Well, I thought you were looking after him. No, I thought it was your turn. We were packing up. You were supposed to. Well, you should have known. And the silence then between them just went into a separateness and a walled off. And the children then started having symptoms of distress. Uh, They came because uh, the boy was now acting out in behavior. That brought them in. And the little girl, uh, the the infant now, was still, couldn't sleep at night and was clinging to the mother constantly. So sometimes there'll be symptoms in the family because of the unbearable grief. And the family isn't able to come to a place to to find healing. And that's when couple counseling for the parents or family counseling can be really invaluable. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's a very sad situation, especially when dealing with the blame game. That's always sort of the um and I've I know a lot of stories and a lot of my friends and a lot of my family when that situation really does come up to play and the reactions are very reactive, very impulsive and, okay, this is the person to blame, this is the person to blame rather than really seeing beyond that. And I think, I mean, especially in that moment of grief, it's going to be very difficult. So, yeah, that that thank you for so much for sharing that story with us. And I think 
you know, that happens too. I, I did uh, uh, talked with uh, some professionals in Turkey uh, last uh, last spring after the earthquakes um, that devastated several different uh, regions. Uh, and it was overwhelming. And uh, it would be like, I know you've had wildfires and we've had wildfires in part of the U.S. Uh, when it, there's widespread loss of human life, of homes, of communities, uh, and it is over, absolutely overwhelming. And, you know, there, there's a sense of, you know, what can we do in the aftermath? And the other part about grieving is it's very hard to grieve when you also have to make a new life. What do you do when your home is destroyed, your community is destroyed, maybe the schools, the the workplace, everything uh, is devastated. And so you may be grieving loved ones uh, and you're also pressed at that time how are we going to survive and go forward here? And then there may be anger, like, how did this happen? And today we have to understand with climate change and even with a natural disaster like an earthquake, that it's never simply uh, natural, that there's always components, like what about the buildings that collapsed, the shoddy construction, the financial dealings that led to that, or the lack of the government oversight? What about that people didn't come to rescue us soon? That that where was the government? Where were our officials? Where is the help? Um, so part of healing from a larger collective trauma in a community disaster is overwhelming. And so um, when you are also dealing with personal grief, like we couldn't rescue, you know, a, a loved family member or child. Um, mm -hmm. We also don't have time and space to grieve because we have to move forward. So it might be that there needs to be time and space um, for that grieving that may be a little delayed because there's such a press of demands in the present. Uh, can I tell you one story about that? Uh, Let's from, go ahead. Uh, okay. Well, from the Turkish situation, um, my daughter, uh, I'm very proud of her. She uh, works in inter international humanitarian uh, relief and uh, particularly in, in mental health and psychosocial uh, support uh, in extreme uh, disaster situations and war. And um, she, uh, for several years, uh, worked in Turkey along the border of Syria, uh, working with programs for Syrian refugees. And so she knew now, years later, she had lived in one of the cities that was totally destroyed uh, by that. Uh, and so, you know, reaching out, knowing people, I know I'm here, I'm at a distance but I know some of the people that the same with working with people who were in other cities, other places. I can't be there physically with you, but now we have so many ways to connect that when there is a disaster, um, 
we need to connect through the internet, through the phone, through whatever ways that we have so that people don't feel alone in their tragedy. Um, there was one woman uh, that uh, I had a, a, I consulted with, um, and she herself had lost, she had gone through the, uh, the earthquake in Turkey. And uh, she said, I don't know, I'm, I'm really at a loss right now, and I just need some support because first they pulled uh, me out of the rubble, and then they pulled my mother the next day out of the rubble. But we couldn't find my brother, and we searched and searched for my little brother. We thought we had lost him, finally found him in day four. And there we were in a tent, but my mother had grievous injuries, and then she died. Mm -hmm. And how unjust that she should die after being rescued, and the injustice of it, and now how can we go on without our mother? And that's just one story of one family. And at the same time, there they are, she said, you know, we came from Syria as refugees. We settled here for several years. We don't even have our identity papers. We don't know where to go, who will help us, how to carry on. So in a widespread disaster, um, there are many needs. And the first, I think, is for that psychosocial support. And that's where community efforts multifamily groups where you come together with your neighbors because you've all experienced loss of one way or another. Uh, and again, suffering alone, but seeing that we've all come through this. I think one of the most um, really heartwarming um, things that we see after a natural disaster or any kind of major event is mm -hmm how everyday people, neighbors, come together for one another, even for strangers. And to me, that is that there is that potential for resilience in each and every one of us that sometimes doesn't get called forth until there is uh, a, a tragedy. Yeah. And we reach out because we're all human and we have compassion for one another. No, that's very true. And I think community support, I think especially when you were mentioning the Australian bushfires that happened um, not so long ago, the amount of community that was built and the amount of people that helped everyone out that knew exactly where to go, that um, used their little kayaks in order to help families and find people and go to places that rescue teams were afraid to go to. They knew that they needed to help and they especially when it came to the elderly there was I think there was a few stories that I was watching on the news of um elderly like old folks home elderly homes that are just being visited and making sure that everyone there is okay everyone there is getting out and leaving and um completely aware so the community support is always amazing I think in times of trauma in times of sadness there's always somehow we're always there for each other we don't we don't know each other 
we've never met one another, but somehow we're just, we're there. And it does, it does also show a lot of hope, especially for me, you show a lot of hope for um, a world that is happy, a world that is, everyone does care about each other. It's, it's a small little utopia in a way. And it's, it's nice to see that there is an essence of um, community there. Exactly. And sometimes in just everyday life, we get caught up in our own struggles mm-hmm. and um, we don't know our neighbors or we don't reach across in that way. But that's the thing that sometimes it takes a tragedy to call out that humanity that's within us. Or in families, too, I mentioned how uh, sometimes couples uh, break apart when there is a tragic death, particularly of a child. But the research also finds stories, and this is through studies that go in, not just measuring, you know, things with, we do a lot of measurement and give people questionnaires, but it really is listening to the stories of people who have gone through these things. And what they many often will say, it's because we, my husband and I were on, we were just so busy in our lives trying to keep everything going. But it wasn't until it was like a wake-up call in our life that how much we need each other. And we pulled together in a way we put aside other things, and it made us realize what really matters in our life and how important we are to each other. And we came together, and we're actually stronger as a family, not because our child died, but because somehow it was, some people say it was epiphany. You know, it, it called for something that made us shake up and shake off some of the things. We've seen that after the pandemic too, where like a lot of people who have the ability to work at home and uh, a lot of people have to go to work and they don't have that that luxury. But they've said, wait a minute. Uh, I've heard many fathers who say, I've gotten much closer to my children. You know, the mother in our family used to be the one that was taking care of everything and much closer. And I didn't even know how much, you know, that love that bloomed between our children and me because I was home more. I was here. I was responsible for more. And I don't want to give that up. And I don't Mm want to go back to work every day. But sometimes you have to. But the thing about a tragedy is that sometimes it and this is the meaning making. It's like, um, I I want to reevaluate what my values are, what we might have lost over time when we got together, you know, all our hopes and dreams. But then we got into, you know, the messiness of everyday life. And I kind of, we lost some of that mm-hmm. and we need to find it again. Mm-hmm. Or maybe making a lot of money and having one more, uh, you know, uh, device and one more, you know, kitchen, whatever, or one more car or one more, that maybe that isn't as important as spending time together 
And yeah. I think it, so in a way coming out of the pandemic, that has been a wake up call for many families about mm-hmm. let's, let's just be more inventive and let's rethink about how we structure our life and what we've taken for granted and what really is important as we go forward. Yeah, no, I can definitely feel and relate to that. I think my dad um, during COVID, he was able to somehow restructure a lot of his work to be online and be able to work from home. And there was that huge connection that he never saw with us as well. So that was, it was really nice to be able to have conversations with them throughout the day, not him coming home from work and us having to relay things after it's already happened. We can tell him while things are happening. So um, it was really nice to sort of for him to really be a part of the, be part of us growing up rather than, and all my life he's been at work constantly. So to be in my twenties and to have him there so I could have have him constantly. It was a huge change, which was, it was a difficult change because we weren't used to him being at home, but it was also very nice um, for him to be in on the action rather than hearing the replay afterwards. Exactly. So, no, it was great. Okay, exactly. And again, like, how do we make something good come out of this, you know, yeah. this, this adversity or this tragedy that we have been through? Exactly. Uh, or I... I also seen, you know, in my own friendship circle and in my family, like somebody I, you know, I had, there was a death and there was one of my relatives who said, I knew he was critically ill. Uh, it was, it was a brother who he was estranged from, you know, and I meant to go see him and I know he wanted me to go see him. And he said, but it never got to the top of my list. And it was like, as he said that, it was such a chilling line. But I knew how people can can just, there's so many demands in everyday life that our, our lives have gotten top heavy with too much. Children yeah. overdressed to get into college, they have to pile on all these things and it it's just all too much. Yes. And so, uh, yeah. and. What that did for my relative was he said, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I feel so badly. And now there's no way it's too late. But you know what he did? He set up a small event for kids in the community uh, that he knew his brother had been uh, a mentor in the the inner city here in Chicago. And he said, I want to do something in his name uh, that would make him proud. And to remember him. And that's what I'm hearing. It's like, who was this person? And I I didn't value him enough in his life. Or we had these disagreements that were petty from adolescence, you know? Uh, you know, like our dad favored him or, you know, or he got more or, you know, or I didn't like the way he always was putting me down, whatever. You know, all those old grievances. And then when you come up to... You know, someone is dying or you've mm-hmm. lost something precious. Mm-hmm. Um, there's time to do something good about it. Hopefully yes, before. Very true. Hopefully before. <laughs> I knew uh, I was, uh, I lost my mother too soon. I was in my late 20s. And my parents were in California. 
and I was on the East Coast and I was in my clinical training and I had responsibilities and I had a budding relationship and, you know, plans for marriage and, you know, and what can you do? You go back and forth. Now we live often at a distance intergenerationally. Mm -hmm. Kids move away, they go to the city or they go to a place where they can maybe have a better future. And it's very hard to be nearby. And I remember feeling like I could go back and forth. And I wasn't there when my mother died. And I went for the funeral. And then I went right back because I had all these responsibilities and I had all these life. And it really wasn't until later, but everybody said, oh, you're so strong. You're so resilient. And that mm -hmm. is not it's when the press of things make us suppress our grief because there's just no room for it, no mm -hmm. place. Yeah, that's but very what, true. Yeah. And so it really took time until, and I mean, I was an adult, so it's like, well, I'm grown up and I'm independent. And it was like, whoa, wait, that was my mom and mm -hmm. how much to me. Mm -hmm. And it was a later when I could give myself time and space uh, to do that. And I then made a really firm decision. I would never do that for my dad. And uh, my dad, we had our struggles, you know, in every mm -hmm. family. Now, no relationship is perfect. And there yeah. he was out in California, and I was still on, you know, far away. And it took me four years after my mother's death to say, I, I've got to make some changes here. I want to get closer to my dad and I want to be sure that when his time comes, you know, I'm going to be there for him. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he lived, you know, several years after my mother died. And, um, and I, when he was terminally ill, I was an only child. And so I had to go out there and handle everything around that time. Mm -hmm. And but I did, and I had a one-year-old, I had a small baby, an infant at home, and a husband. And I said to my pediatrician, what am I going to do? Because attachment theory all tells me, you know, the mother has to be there for your child. And she said, well, it isn't just one person, but it's that that child has loving care. It's your father who's dying, who you can't be replaced. He needs mm -hmm. you next. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was wise. And I needed to hear it from my pediatrician because, well, what do I do? And I did. I, I took my, my child with me sometimes. and But I had to go back and forth and do that. And it was very precious time with my dad that I had to work toward because um, we didn't have the best of relationship. Um, but I knew that that mattered. And... Uh, you know, it was it was really very healing. No, that's that sounds amazing, and I think um, I can definitely relate in so many ways with my not immediate family, but my distant relatives. My grandparents are not in the same place as us, and there's that whole idea. Okay, yes, they're getting older, and I can't keep traveling over to see them. My parents can't keep traveling to see them. So, and I think COVID was probably the worst time for uh, making sure that they were safe, making sure that they were okay. But 
knowing that they have family that's close to them as well is is sort of nice in a way because it allows them to us to really know that okay they have other people around them they're not going to be by themselves they're um they have people who are constantly looking out for them and constantly buying groceries for them and making sure that they're okay so there is that um there is that sort of calmness in it and all we have to do is make sure that we keep in communication so that is yeah and you are most fortunate uh that you have podcasts and you know how to use zoom or whatever whatever yes. format you can use and i think like there are a lot of families my dear friend and colleague celia falakov um is a leading authority on on working with immigrant and multinational families mm-hmm. uh you might want to chat with her sometime oh definitely she, she's uh, from argentina lives in southern california and her children of course moved away to all different parts and she spends a lot of time traveling but um she talks a lot about, you know, how to help people who are living in two different places still have two hearts mm-hmm. to not go off because they can't be physically present. That, you know, to keep those channels of communication open and frequent um, and, and loving um, because there are many ways that we can be there for each other. Yeah, that's very true. You can ask uh, right now. well now i'd love to move on to our practice and habit part of the show um so what practice would you recommend to a family to cope with their traumatic loss after a disaster or a difficult situation yeah um well over the years from the resilience research and from my own clinical work uh, we were able to distill like certain beliefs and practices that really help in families. And um, of the practices, first of all, is keeping communication open so that you don't shut down with each other. Mm -hmm. You can respect when somebody needs quiet time or separate time, but don't let them just withdraw and be alone. Keep that communication open and open to sharing sad feelings, be tolerant of uh, some, because you're not all going to be on the same page at the same time. And for some, they may get through their intense grief sooner. Others may carry it longer. And then it's going to be like this. So to be able to understand and um, with caring uh, compassion for one another in a family when you're not in the same place, that you can hold it. And about the communication, make time for respite from the grief that you can have moments of maybe out in nature, of an evening. We like to have popcorn and watch a funny movie together. Uh, Something or where you cook a meal together. Or you just do something that just reinvigorates, that revitalizes you as you're going through those pathways of grief. And that's all about sharing. Um, Another part is the organization. When when somebody in the family is missing that you've really counted on, Mm -hmm. the parents and other adults to have to provide flexibility and parenting and caring for children and other vulnerable members 
also to see it not, and especially when there's a single parent, now it's all up to mom to do everything or whatever, that it's going to be teamwork, that everybody's got a part to play, and that every child in the family, no matter their age, there's something they can do. If if grandma is ill and dying, I can make a little sunny, small children can make a picture to take to grandma to make her smile, or that they can help with cleaning up um, the kitchen or doing things to share, to be part of either preparing for loss or helping with the grief in the aftermath. Um, on the beliefs, it's important that there is uh, a sense of value of we. We can get through this together. We may not know how we're going to do it yet, but we're going to be here for each other. That's the main thing about the, that resilience is relational that will help each other through this. And a second part of that is hope. How do you find hope when everybody is in despair? And you may have to, one person may have to hold hope for the others for a while, lend some hope to each other, hold each other through dark times until they can regain hope and maybe reorient what they can hope for, that they have to change maybe their hopes and dreams a little bit. Um, and the last part of that on the beliefs, and these are practices, because it isn't just holding beliefs, but you practice them, you practice hope. Um, and you have to practice what you can do to make a difference. I We call it um, practicing the art of the possible. Um, how can, given that we've our losses are so devastating, what is it that we can do now in this time, in this place? Um, so it's looking at what's possible, uh, taking some steps forward, and holding each other through that process. Uh, and finally, I guess the last part of beliefs and values is having some larger value orientation. Uh, it may be your faith. It may be a faith community where that community helps to give you strength and hold you through it. Or it may be more personal faith, maybe through scriptures or contemplative practices. It could be um, uh, through yoga through music, through art, it may be through nature. For many people now, it's finding nourishment in feeling connected to living things outdoors. Uh, for me, that's very important, and I know it's going to be personal. So it's, you know, how do you find... Uh, when I actually, many years ago, uh, was doing a, a, a workshop in Adelaide, Australia, um, on resilience, and there was a part of it on uh, spiritual resources. And I remember that the people uh, who were participating in the workshop said, oh, you can skip over that part because uh, we're not religious here. We're not spiritual here. <laughs> and I said, well, how do you find nourishment? And they said, oh, no, no, no. They said, I said, well, how do you find meaning? How do you find connection? And they said, 
well, we would call that nourishment. And I, I just, I love that word because we can find a more, uh, it, we can call it spiritual. Some people don't want to call it spiritual, but ways that nourish us, that give us a sense of inner wholeness, that we feel connected to ourselves, to others around us, and that we find a larger connection with humanity or with our community, uh, with a higher power, however we conceive of that, uh, so that there are many ways uh, through secular values, a sense of a moral compass. And I think connecting with those values is really important at that time. So I've, I've mentioned many different ways, but these are all part of family life. And for some people, they may find that some are easier or are more meaningful for them to do. But all in all, it's that keep communication open to support each other. If you have to reorganize your family life, um, find a way to be flexible and still find a new center. Uh, I don't like this word, a new normal, because we don't even know what that is anymore after the pandemic or after adversity strikes. Um, but we'll find a way forward if most of all uh, we're working together at it. So now we're reaching the last section of our show, which is the open mic. It gives you a chance to talk about something that you're passionate about or something that you feel haven't we haven't mentioned about before and earlier in the show. So in the last minute or so, I'd love to give you the floor and get your thoughts on today. Uh, thank you. Well, as you could tell from our conversation uh, today, um, human resilience is really what I most care about. And what it is, is not don't worry, be happy, but it's really how do we cope and adapt and even grow stronger out of adversity? meaning when terrible things happen, tragic events. And in my own work over more than three decades, uh, I've been working with families who have suffered sometimes catastrophic losses uh, in very tragic ways. And I did some early research and uh, writing throughout my career, but I felt the need now uh, for a new book uh, for people who are working to help other families, and for also for families, people who are going through uh, maybe impending loss of a loved one, or a recent loss of a loved one, or maybe someone long ago, and they are still suffering or struggling with that loss. So I think it, it's a book, it's called uh, Complex and Traumatic Loss, Fostering Healing and Resilience. And it presents um, ways that we can be helpful to one another in our relationships, personally in our own lives, with lots of stories and just some simple principles um, that we can apply either when we're facing a threatened loss or in the immediate wake of loss or long after. Uh, sometimes I've seen people who have come to me uh, and their child is now at the same age that they suffered a loss 
a, a, de- a generation earlier. Uh, and it calls for things out of the past. Or a couple comes to see me and they're afraid that they're going to lose. I'm sorry. A couple comes to see me and they're struggling over whether to have a second child. And at first they talk about everything that that means, how it's going to change their life, whether they can afford it. But that's not the real issue. Uh, What it is, is that when he was a small child, his mother died in childbirth with his younger sibling. And he's really afraid of losing his wife. But he didn't realize that's what all of his upset and anger were about until we touched upon that. And so we carry those losses with us, and it's not surprising they're going to come up later in life. And that's normal. Um, Grief is a normal process. It can be intense. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with us. It means that healing is a lifelong process, and there are going to be times that it will come up. And I'm hoping that the book that I wrote just recently um, with Guilford Press uh, is going to be helpful uh, to those who may be suffering or struggling or wanting to help others through those times. Well, thank you so much, Roma, for that last little takeaway. And that book is actually really amazing. I read uh, read it over the weekend, and it's really good. So I definitely appreciate it. And I definitely would recommend it to anyone who feels that they really want to know more about healing and understanding a lot more about resilience as well. Um, well, thank you so much, Roma, for joining me on the show today and for speaking a lot of, a lot of different stories and your own personal uh, connection with a lot of the people that are going through so many turmoil and so much resilience and having to build back their lives after such incredible and traumatic losses. Now, if there's a way that audiences would like to get in contact with you, do you have contact information that I'm able to give out? Absolutely. You can give them my email and uh, maybe a photo of the book would be good too. If you have it. Oh, perfect. Actually have the book would be good. Yes, I have that one. That's the book. Okay. I think that's one of them, one of the books that was sent over. So I definitely appreciate that. Another one um, which is on human on family resilience. If yes. I want to see that well. Yes. And then that's in the other one. Okay. What thank so you those so are much. Two books. Well. Well, thank you so much again for joining me. And I hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as I did. I'll see you all in the next episode. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.